Well, good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Uh, if you've been with us for the month of December, you know that we've been in this series asking this question, what child is this? And in one sense, uh, as we've said, the question is just rooted in the Christmas song, what child is this? It's sung every year. But in another sense, this is the question. Like, what child is this is the most important question. It's similar to when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Like, who exactly, who precisely was born in that manger 2,000 years ago? How you answer that question changes everything about your life. It influences every component and facet of your life. Now, each week, we've answered that question sort of from different angles. Week one, we said, what child is this? Well, he was the good shepherd of the people of God. The second week of December, we looked at how the child born in the manger came to be a servant, in particular, a suffering servant. And then week three, last week, we talked about how he was king. He is Jesus Christ, the Messiah and king. Now this week, we're gonna answer this question again, what child is this, from another angle. In order to do so, though, I'd like to take us to a passage that you'd probably not be expecting to uh, be read on Christmas Eve. It's like not, it's gonna at first not seem like a very Christmassy type of thing. It's the moment of Jesus' betrayal by Judas. John 18, one through three. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So we're in a garden. It's the middle of the night. Judas, the betrayer, comes and he brings soldiers with him and they're going to arrest Jesus. The verse begins when Jesus had spoken these words. This is referring to what's called, as a part of the high priestly prayer, also his prayer in the garden. It has to do with uh, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, telling them to do likewise, the celebration of the Passover meal. So after all of that, that night, Judas betrays Jesus. It goes on. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's kind of weird. Like, that's weird. Like, um, some, some people have been Christians a long time, and you, you've read this passage, and you just kind of go on it, but you don't actually stop and see, like, what? Wait, what just happened? Hey, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I'm he. I'm him. And everyone just kind of falls down. And then they just go on and kind of arresting him. It's like, what? what? It's bizarre. It's a, it's a weird verse. They all just sort of fall back and fall down. And then it gets a little even more weird. It starts mentioning some like details and names that you're going like, what is going on here? So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, this is the second time now. I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that had, he had spoken of those whom he gave me, I have not lost one. And then listen to this, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Yeah, Merry Christmas, everybody. Um, the servant's name was Malchus. Did you know about Malchus? You know, Malchus, man, he got his ear chopped off. Verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? It's just kind of... A, a weird story. Nighttime, garden, ears getting chopped off. Jesus going like, hey, you don't need to 
to do that, put the sword away. And then Jesus saying, yeah, I'm here, I, I am he. And then people just, everyone falls over. And then they just go on with the trial and, and crucifixion. It's bizarre. Okay. In order to understand this story and why this actually has a lot to do with Christmas, we have to go back even further, back farther than this story. This story takes place 2,000 years ago, but we're going to go roughly 1,200 years before that. And we're going to look at another shepherd, shepherd by the name of Moses, Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Moses is a shepherd, he's got a flock, he goes up a mountain, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God told him, God, God, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, if you've been a Christian a long time, you're, you're probably familiar with the story of the burning bush, but it's important to pause here and actually reflect on this picture because it's actually, it's quite interesting God is revealing himself as a bush that's burning. But what's the key here? Yet it was not consumed. Okay. So the fire consumes not, nor is consumed. And you could just say, okay, the, okay let's move on. No, no, we get, it's like stop, meditate upon that. Like, fire by nature consumes. Fire by nature has to have a fuel source. You got a fire going, it starts to go out, what do you do? You put more wood on the fire. So fundamentally... Fire, by nature, always has a fuel source that it needs to consume. And if it doesn't, it eventually goes out. But here there is an image, a fire, a fire that is fundamentally different than all other fires. It consumes not, nor is itself consumed. God speaks to Moses and he says, I am going to use you to deliver my people from slavery. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God gives Moses this sign, and he gives him a promise. The voice from the fire will be with Moses. Salvation will come. Deliverance from slavery will happen, and God will be with his people. Then it goes on. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God has said to Mo <clears throat> God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This, the voice from the fire is, is a fire that consumes not, nor is consumed, and it reveals itself to have a name. The name from the fire is, I am who I am. In Hebrew, this is Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh. 
And it's, it's ehyeh is just I am. It's from the Hebrew verb hayah. And so hayah is a verb. If you put it in the first person, it's ehyeh. Ehyeh, I am. But the bean says, I am that I am. Now let's put this together with the image of the fire and like some, some fascinating things begin to, to emerge. The voice from the fire is claiming that he just is. Normally we would say I am something, right? I am a father, I am a carpenter, I am this, I am the son of so-and-so. This being is saying, Ehie, Asher, Ehie, I am, I am. In other words, this is a claim to pure being. He is complete pure being. He is the ground of all beings. And the fire does not consume. In other words, the fire is not contingent or dependent upon anything else for its sustenance. Let me say it another way. All fires, usually you need something as a fuel source. So the fire is dependent upon something else. And that, by the way, is how everything in the created order exists. Everything is a web of dependency and contingency. So let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, You owe your existence to your parents. I owe my being to my parents. Like, I don't exist without them. So my, my being is contingent upon them. But I'm also contingent and dependent on other things, right? Food, water, like shelter. If you don't have food, what happens? You die. So you exist as a contingent, a dependent creature. And you're, de- you're in a web of dependency and contingencies. And you exist within that. Like this goes down to the molecular level. Like, the matter that composes your body, if that matter does not exist and hold together in the precise fashion that it holds together, you come undone, you die. So in every possible way, everything in creation is in a state of contingency and dependency. This fire, however, is fundamentally different. It consumes not, nor is consumed itself. Furthermore, his name is Ehie, I am. That I am. I am pure being. It's like I am the grounds of all reality. Everything else is contingent upon something else. I am contingent on nothing. I'm dependent upon nothing. Now, this is something, this idea is something that many of the greatest thinkers throughout human history have wrestled with, pondered with, and postulated. People of various different backgrounds and traditions try to come up with this this idea of a necessary being. If everything else is contingent and necessary, like there has to be this one thing that is independent upon all of that that creates everything. So this is similar to Aristotle's The Unmoved Mover. It's similar to Philo of Alexandria's The Being Who Is, or Maimonides' The Necessary Existent. Or a theologian from a thousand years ago, Thomas Aquinas, he called it the Eps... Epsom essay, subsistence, subsistent being itself. And so there's various different ways philosophers throughout the centuries have tried to articulate this. Nevertheless, they're all sort of reaching at some kind of similar idea, but the Hebrew scriptures do something different here. They don't give you a list of propositions or a philosophical treatise. What do the Hebrew scriptures give you? They give you an image and a name. They give you a fire that consumes not, nor is consumed. And they give you a name. I am that I am. Ehie, Asher, Ehie. So the fire, this fire, 
It's different. It's like fundamentally different. It doesn't need anything for its own existence. Its source, its sustenance is the being itself. Furthermore, this fire is fundamentally different because it has this, this, this name that doesn't say like, I am something, it's just I am being. I'm it, I am the grounds for it all. Now at this point, there's something even crazier occurring. We just read how God said, my name is I am that I am, right? We just read that. And if you were to say like, if you grew up in church and you were doing like Bible trivia time, like what is God's name in the burning bush? You go, oh, I am that I am, I am who I am, okay? No question, for those of you who are familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, does anyone after this continue to call God, I am that I am? Like how often do you read that in your Bible? It's really weird. Everyone stops calling God, I am that I am. No one calls him I am. What's going on? Check this out. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, no longer I am has sent you, but the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So if you've been coming to this church for quite some time, you know that in the Old Testament, if you read the word Lord and it's all in capitals right there like it is in verse 15, it's the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. And all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, this is the name that people use to call upon God. His name is Yahweh. It occurs over 6,000 times in the Hebrew scriptures. But do you see the problem? It's kind of bizarre. God just tells them his, their name. Ehieh, Asher, Ehieh, I am that I am. And then immediately after that verse, and for the rest of the time in the Bible, no one calls him Ehieh, Asher, Ehieh. They call him Yahweh. And what in? It's like, did you not listen, Moses? Like, did, are you listening to me? You hear that? It's like, so what's going on? Yahweh, which is the word for the Lord, and that's the one that's used 6,000 times, comes from the same verbal root word as I am, Ehieh. Ehieh and Yahweh share the same verbal root, which is the Hebrew word, Chayah. And there's all kinds of like scholarly debate on to precisely how Yahweh is formed uh, from that root word. Nevertheless, what occurs with Yahweh is something like the third person usage of the same verb, Hayah. So, Ehieh is I am, first person usage of the verb Hayah. Yahweh is something like the third person usage, something like he is. Okay, now, we not only started off like in a weird Bible verse for Christmas Eve, now most of you are going, I didn't come to get like a first person, third person gr- grammar lesson on Christmas Eve. Now trust me, let me help, let, let, this is why, it, let me help it make sense and why it's important. Succinctly said, when God discloses his name, when he discloses himself from the vantage point of himself, he says, my name is Ehieh, I am. For the rest of scriptures, when people encounter and refer to the being who is the ground of all being, they don't say I am, they say he is. It's an important distinction. I am is how the infinite one reveals himself from his his vantage point, who he is. He is the being that is pure being. 
He is a non-contingent, non-dependent being. However, when you encounter that being, it's he is. So Moses doesn't go to Pharaoh and say, hey, I am, it's it's already confusing, I am tells me that you must let the people go. Are you talking, Moses? Like, I am. No, he is. When God discloses who he is, it's I am. When you talk about who he is, it's he is. It's very interesting. It's very, very interesting. Now, you get this image and this name revealed. But Moses, additionally, he wants, he wants more. He knows the name, and he's with God. But 30 chapters after this passage, Moses gets the audacity to ask God a question. He's going to ask for even more. He's going to say, I want to see your glory. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Okay, succinctly said, Moses says, I know when I saw you in the burning bush, that wasn't like the pure, your pure presence and your pure glory. Let me see you like unveiled. God is sort of like hiding the power of his glory. Let me see your glory as it truly is. And God's response is, nah, you'll die, bro. You'll die. You will die. And and this is important to note. It's not because like God can't be in the presence of sin or something like that, although stuff like that is often said. It's that the person can't be in the presence of this God. Think about a son. If you were to fly a rocket ship into the sun, the sun isn't afraid of you. It's not that the sun can't be in the presence of a human. That great big ball of fire is not afraid of a human presence. But rather, you can't be in the presence of the sun. You can't go to the center of the sun. And so likewise, God is saying, you can't see me and live. Nevertheless, God makes this deal with Moses. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Okay, so God says, okay, you want to see my glory? It's going to happen. You'll die. But here we go. I'm going to put you in the cleft, like in the crack of a rock, to hide you. And then I'm going to put my hand over you to protect you. And then I'm going to walk by you and let you through the protection of my hand, hidden in this rock, see the fading, passing glory of the, my backside. That's, that's what you get. Because you couldn't, you couldn't encounter it without some type of veil, without some type of covering. So this happens to Moses, and even with all of that sort of like extra protection, the text says that when Moses came down from the mountain, this is really strange, it said his skin, like his face was glowing. Think about like a, an iron rod going into a fire. As the iron rod sits in the fire, the rod is absorbing the heat. And if you pull it out in the night, you see on the rod, you see the heat. You see it glowing. So Moses has a similar experience when he's hiding in a rock with the hand over him in the backside of the passing glory of God. Now this is how like the glory of God is depicted in the Hebrew scriptures. It's not something you can just like run up to and encounter. 
So, for example, in the temple, in the Old Testament, um, God is going to uniquely manifest his presence in the temple, in particular, a smaller room in the temple called the Holy of Holies. And do you know what happens if you would go into the Holy of Holies? You're going to die. Now, it's often said that, um, well, there's an exception because the high priest, on one day a year, the Day of Atonement, would go into the Holy of Holies and encounter God. That's actually not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that the high priest goes in there once a year, but then he's to be burning incense to create a smoke veil. So there's a veil, there's a partial protection, a blocking, because if the priest were to encounter that, it directly says he will die. And then you get weird stuff like this. So in the book of Isaiah, the prophet has a vision and he sees uh, the temple and God's sitting on it and he has these, the train of his robe is filling the temple with glory and there's two angelic beings, supernatural angelic beings called seraphim. And these seraphim have six wings. And do, do you remember what they do with two of their wings? They cover their eyes. They cover their face. So even like supernatural beings that sit around the throne room of God that worship him continually saying, holy, 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 there's still a covering. There's a veil. And you see that all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. There's always some type of curtain or veil or hiding in the rock. Because if you truly encounter it, God says, you see me and you die. Okay, now let's put all these pieces together. There is the voice from the fire. And the voice from the fire is a fire that consumes not nor is consumed. That being is not contingent or dependent upon anything. He needs no fuel source. He is the ground of all contingent and dependent beings. And he reveals this in his name. Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh, I am who I am. When we encounter him in the Hebrew scriptures, it's he is. You don't get to say I am. I am is only ever from the mouth of God. Okay, now let's take all of that back with us to the life of Jesus. There's an encounter of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John where um, some of the religious leaders are questioning him and they're, they're questioning him and they're, they're starting to see that Jesus is claiming that he's somebody important, like he's a big deal. And they get, they get rattled up by that and they say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? This is what Jesus says. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. Tough words. I, if I did that, I'd be a liar just like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now this is a little weird because Jesus, you know, he's a, born in Bethlehem, he's born in the manger, so he's not like more than 50 60, 70, 80 years, I mean, he's in his 30s, but the, they, they, the religious leaders rightly go, you're, you're not even 50 years old, and you're acting like you know Abraham? So Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and they're like, bro, at most you're 50, Jesus is like 30, and 
how are you claiming to know Abraham like you, like you knew him? Listen to Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I am what? I am a good shepherd. I am the son of Mary. I am a carpenter. Remember, with grammar, I am, like some of you, the grammar people are like, yeah, where's the predicate nominative? Like, we gotta figure this out. Like, what's the rest of the sentence? Um, just, I am. Now, the New Testament is written in Greek, so it just says the Greek words, ego, emi, ego, I, emi, being em. So he just says, ego, emi, I am. And then you're going like, it, what is Jesus claiming here? What, what is he attempting to say? Now remember, all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God's name is Yahweh, he is. The phrase, I am, is only used by the mouth of God when he discloses himself to others. Is Jesus claiming to be the fire from the burning bush? Is Jesus claiming to be the voice of the one who said, Ehiyeh Asher Ehiyeh? Well, their response lets you know. Because some people might say, no, Jesus is just saying I am. Let's not, Jesus, like, let's not get too crazy. He wouldn't be making such a claim. That's not what he meant to say. No, no. You know how we know what he, he was meant to say? Listen to the response of the crowd. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They picked up stones to slowly kill him to death. Kill him to death. Stone him to death. Being killed unto death is bad. <laughs> so, you follow this. Like, everyone there knows exactly what he's doing. But here's the thing. You may begin to wrestle with this. Is Jesus claiming to be God? Is he claiming to be the fire that consumes not, nor is itself consumed? Is that his actual claim? Because that's a bold claim. But then you go back to your Old Testament kind of Bible knowledge, and you go, wait a second, there's a big problem with this. Because no man can see God and live. And when people had encounters with God where they were hidden in a rock with the hand protecting them and they saw the backside of the glory, they were affected to the point that their skin was glowing. Like that's, that's what happens when you encounter just a slight unveiling of the glory of God. And if Jesus is God, he's going around walking and talking with people and they're living, they're looking at his face, nothing's happening. People reject him. People didn't, like, they're not having the same type of encounter with Jesus as they do with God in the Old Testament. So you have this big problem. People can see him and it's not a big deal. Okay, check this out. Um, one of the disciples by the name of Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah, the King, and immediately after this, Jesus takes his disciple Peter and two other disciples named James and John, and he takes him up to the top of a high mountain which is already interesting because if you know those Old Testament verses, you know that God likes to reveal himself on the top of mountains. And this is what occurs. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up high, up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white a slight unveiling for these three disciples to see. A slight unveiling, and what is the appearance of Jesus? He is shining like the, 
He is shining like a great ball of fire. He is shining like the sun. His radiance is like the sun. And right after this, Peter knows that he's in trouble because he's like, uh, teacher, should we, is it okay that we're up here? Like, and he starts figuring out what to do next. So follow this. With the slightest of unveiling, you see the glory of Jesus. And the glory of Jesus shines like the sun. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like someone? Now, let's take all of this back with us to the very beginning, where we started, at the moment of Christ's betrayal. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, where he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So we're in the middle of the night, in darkness. And we're in a garden. And a great temptation will fall upon Jesus. Will he ultimately say to the Father, your will and not mine, and go to the cross? You know, Jesus prays, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And now there's a betrayer. But it's not just a betrayer there. It's not just Judas there. The text wants you to know Judas is there, but it's not because the emphasis on Judas. Did you notice how it repeats itself, like right after? Now Judas, who betrayed him, then verse three. So Judas wants you to know he's there. Why? Because several sections earlier, John told you something about Judas. That on the night of Christ's betrayal, Satan had entered into Judas. So the emphasis on Judas here is not just to point you to the man Judas. Satan entered him. Now connect some of these dots. Are you kidding me? We're in a garden and the serpent of old approaches the human, the truly human one. And what does he do? What does he do? Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Who initiates the conversation? Jesus. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, again the emphasis, who betrayed him was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. The serpent of old comes to battle Jesus in a garden. In a garden. But this time, the serpent of old's battle is not just against a mere mortal, a mere man. Because yes, there is the human Jesus, but the human Jesus that is there is also God himself. This battle will not be between the serpent of old and mere mortal. It is between the serpent, Satan, and God himself. And what does God in the flesh do at this moment? He identifies himself and says, I am he. Now, why does that identification cause this falling down of the soldiers? Well, in Greek, this I am he is only two words. It's ego, eimi, I am. 
How do I know that this is Jesus disclosing who he truly is? Because the first time he said, I am, people got up stones to kill him. This time, at the moment of his betrayal, he says the words, ego emi, I am, and the soldiers fall down. Why is this important? Jesus is making it abundantly clear. He can disarm every soldier there with his mere word. He can disarm an army sent from Rome with his speech. You're not coming to arrest me against my will. Let me just make it clear to those who are there, to the serpent of old, to Judas, and to my disciples. This isn't happening to me. Like, I'm happening to this. This is why I've come. And to show you this is why I've come, I disarm everyone here. Nevertheless, I willfully go. And he goes to the cross. Because Jesus came, God came, to save us from our sin. In the burning bush, God tells Moses, I am the non-contingent one, the non-dependent one. I am the unmoved mover. I am the prime mover. All things flow through me. I am the creator. Everything else is creation. Nevertheless, the transcendent one will be with Moses and his people. God will be with them. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent to you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. In the first time, God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. But at the heart of the Christmas message is God himself coming to be with his people, not to deliver them from slavery in Egypt, but to save them from their sin. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The same fire, the fire that consumes not nor is consumed, the fire that says, I am that I am, that same fire, the non-contingent, non-dependent, infinite being came down and took upon himself humanity. He wrapped himself with our nature in the flesh. And so the non-contingent, non-dependent, infinite being is now in his mother's lap, dependent upon her body to produce the nourishment that will give him sustenance. At the heart of the Christmas message is the message that the fire comes and is born to be a baby, born in a manger. And the reason why you can behold him and not die is because he's wrapped himself, but not with a curtain, not with rock, but with us, with what we are, humans. He wrapped himself in humanity, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, held the incarnate deity. These are the songs we sing. Take a look at those lyrics in their broader context. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting, everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, 
pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God with us. At the heart of the Christmas message is this idea that all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God could not be approached by humans. It would be like walking into the radiance of a thousand suns. You would cease to be. Woe is to me, for I am undone if I come into the presence of God. The heart of the message is God could not be approached, but at the heart of the Christmas message is that God has approached us. He's come near to us. He's wrapped himself in us, in our humanity. Emmanuel, God with us. And he does all of this. He comes down and he demonstrates why he hears, John, why he's here. John said, he knew everything that would happen to him. He shows that he could disarm the soldiers. Nevertheless, nobody takes his life from him. He willfully gives it up. For us. For us. The fire that is not consumed nor consumes loves you. Loves you. And I know, that, you know, especially if you grew up hearing stuff like that, you could lose, you could lose the importance of that, but um, like, Jesus loves you. The, fi- the fire that is, I am that I am, a being that is not dependent or contingent, came to earth to die because he loves you. So no matter like whatever's going on in your life, whatever Christmas is like, like the infinite being, the most important being in all of reality, the ground of all reality, he loves you. He loves you. And no matter who you are, that should encourage you. Because not just like anybody. God loves you. Jesus loves you. That fire came to earth to die on a cross because he loves you. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Like, that's what it's about. Failed in flesh, the Godhead see, hell, the incarnate deity. Jesus, the fire that is, consumes not, nor is consumed, he loves you. We're going to transition into communion. And I know it's a very simple, simple idea, but I want you to focus on the fact that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Let's stand as we take communion.